Um, before I go any further, I want to thank our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for sending his Holy Spirit. Because without him, we would be doing everything in our own strength. We ha- and we're supposed to work on our own salvation, right? But imagine doing it without the help of the Holy Spirit. We would be like everyone else in the world. We have a, an amazing divine power available to us, and it's, it's just incredible. Uh, secondly, I'd like to thank you ladies for being so faithful to be coming um, through the months. And even though we meet once a month, it, it blesses me when, and all of us when we can look around the room and see you here. It really does bless me. And I know it blesses all of us to see you here. And um, when before we start in your fellowshipping, that blesses me. And usually I'm sitting facing the stage and not seeing you, but when we're worshiping, I get to hear you. And it's like a choir of angels. You all sound so beautiful together. And um, it, it really is a blessing for this women's ministry. I also would like to thank the worship leaders that have come to join us. And the Lord had showed me a while back that our women, our women's ministry, and our ladies, we're, we're, we're all going to just sit and be merry. We could be busy bodies like Martha, but we needed to be still before the Lord so that the Holy Spirit would just... We went through a lot in the last couple of years. So I know the Lord wanted us to be still and just fill us with his presence to be able to conquer things and and just rise up into that next level of faith that he wanted us to go. And so the worship, I invited worship leaders to come and lead us in worship. And, of course, we started with our precious ladies, which was amazing. And then we had Sama and Alina from Calvary Chapel, the Branch in Claremont, and Priscilla Miller and Hunter. Remember them? They came all the way from Las Vegas to lead us in worship. And Priscilla never holds back on her gift. She gives it all, and I love that about her. And then we had Sarah and Drake. They came from Calvary Rancho Cucamonga, and they were such a blessing. And they've been here before with our church, and so it was great to have two guys come in among us and uh, with their, um, the young women that worship with them. And then we had Sarah Paraspolo, our neighbor from down the street, which she started joining our women's studies early on, and I got to meet her. And uh, her church is called Community Christian Center. It's right down the street. And uh, it was just, you know, you just don't know people, really, until you, you know, you start introducing yourself and getting, my goodness, she's right there. She's just amazing. What she does for a living. I mean, you got girls need to talk to this girl. She, she's pretty cool. <laughs> But her worship was beautiful as well. And so then, of course, tonight we get to close with our very own worship team once again. And uh, they always melt my heart. And I also like to thank the amazing guest speakers that we had. Viani Anzu from Calvary Chapel of the Branch in Claremont. She spoke on the work of the Holy Spirit. Shelley Coronia from Calvary Chapel El Monte. She spoke on the power and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, there are a lot of people that make that subject so difficult, but she made it really so simple to understand. And I, I pray you will listen to that message again. Uh, we had Janice Arate, one of my good friends for many years. She came from Rancho Cucamonga with Drake and um, Sarah. <laughs> 
And um, she spoke on the church, a dwelling place and a showcase to shine in us and through us to the world. And does the world need it or what? And then we had my precious daughter, Natalie Padilla. She spoke on quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. And Alicia Ciara, she taught on the impartable sin against the Holy Spirit. Both of those subjects which are incredibly difficult to teach. And these two young women, believe it or not, hadn't taught before. But they stepped up because they have a relationship with the Lord. And they were able to testify boldly um, the reality of how we can spiritually fall when we don't listen to the voice of the Spirit and the conviction and the calling from the Spirit. And how dangerously close we could come to con- um, crossing the line of no return. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So all of these wonderful sisters and brothers that came to fulfill what I believe is the perfect will of the Holy Spirit for this past season. And uh, it fulfills what he wanted, and especially when it says in Psalm 133:1, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be unified throughout the world, not just here, but Christians everywhere. And so let's pray now and ask the Holy Spirit to meet us now for this final study. Father God, I bow before you in the name of Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that once again, you would flood this place with your presence, Lord. I know you're already here. You already are doing that. But may you just continue to work in the hearts and minds of my sisters as, as I share this little bit of message. And then we move on to an even bigger message, Lord. And that you would just have my sisters receive this, Father. Not in any way... Uh, in a negative way, but in a powerful way to prepare them for the things that are coming, Lord. I think I shared this at the very beginning. We hit, were hit by so many storms, and there are more to come. And so, Lord, may you strengthen my sisters with these truths so that they could stand boldly in these last days, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title for our final message tonight is Revival in the World Through the Holy Spirit. Now, in my original draft, when I was praying over these studies and, you know, looking for scriptures and putting down the titles, I had actually added to this, is it too late? Is it too late to see revival in the world, especially in the condition that we see it in today? Now, the word revival means an act or instance of reviving to rescue, to bring back or to regain life, consciousness, or strength. Revival can be as simple as adding a little bit of water to a wilting plant, or as dramatic as pulling a drowning person out of the ocean and breathing life back into their lungs. Revival also means a renewed attention to or interest in something, as in a new presentation or publication of something old. Now, that was... Uh, Webster's Dictionary um, definition. But the subject of the Holy Spirit is not new. It is something that is ancient. He is the third person of the triune God, the eternal God. So the Holy Spirit has always been. But he, we needed to be reminded of who he is. I believe that the church, as I said, not just ours, but the church throughout the world, 
is suffering with a type of amnesia or a long or maybe along the lines of a failing heart. With all that we've been seeing, you know, the world has been ravaged by the tra tragedies of the pandemic. You have to admit that. And we've been ravaged by the atrocities that are happening all around us with the lawlessness and just, it's insane, the things we're seeing. And when we see all these things going on all around us, it could discourage us and it could dishearten us, even to the point where we can become very angry and bitter at mankind and maybe even angry at God. In our heart of hearts, we may even say, to hell with them who hate my God, who hate my Christianity, who hate righteousness. Calling these things, these feelings that we might have, as harsh as that may sound, righteous anger, right? Get so mad we feel like we are righteously angry at what we're all seeing and experiencing. But does it ever concern you that millions of people around us are going to hell? They're traveling to hell with the weight of unforgiveness of sins in their life needlessly? It should. We aren't to look at this world and just turn around and ignore it. We are to be powerful in this time. Do you remember the story of Jonah? God had asked Jonah to go to Nineveh and to go and tell the people that basically I love them and I want to save them. It was a very corrupt and evil and wicked civilization there in, in Nineveh. And Jonah thought, they don't deserve it. I'm paraphrasing this. They don't deserve it. They don't, I can't go over there and do this. And so what did he do? Instead of going this way, he went that way. And he got on a ship away from where he was going. But you know the story. God was going to get him to Nineveh, whether he liked it or not. And where did he go to Nineveh? And guess what? They were all saved. So we could see the world the way it is today and think, there's nothing savable anymore. But that's not true. Now I'd like to read one portion from a book that literally changed my life and my walk as a believer many years ago. It helped me to understand the effectual and the persistent work of the Holy Spirit more fully that led me to a personal revival. And that's where I'm going with this. It needs to be a personal revival, a Christian revival. When I read this book, it really relit a fire in my soul. Because you know when you first came to the Lord, how you were like on fire, you couldn't get enough of Jesus, you couldn't get enough of the word. I mean, we would travel miles to go to church. That was in the day when there was only one Calvary Chapel, and it was in Costa Mesa. And we would go all the way out there to worship and hear and learn, and we were on fire. But then after a while, you know, the trip got a little long, like, hmm can't go that far. And before you know it, we just start slowing down. But one day the Lord led me to this book. He invited me to a retreat. Other people said they invited me. No, it was Jesus. He invited me to this retreat. And I don't remember who I roomed with. I don't remember the food. I don't remember any of that. I just remember meeting Jesus there through this book. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. So let me read just a portion of it to you. Oh, one thing I did want to say. 
In my personal revival, you may not know this, but it was through my personal revival that it led my husband to his personal revival. It wasn't that I was more spiritual than him by any means. In fact, both of us were, we were really stagnant in our walk. We were believers, but we were just content where we were, living up in the mountains, tucked away in the woods, after saying no to God for something else. It's a long story. But we were living in a log cabin, like, I don't know, country folk. <laughs> Very content to be there. And um, that's when I got this invitation to go to this retreat. The Lord was already doing a work in my heart. I was falling in love with him all over again through reading his word and through listening to Bible studies on the radio. And so the Lord knew I was ready to go the next place. My husband wasn't. He was very happy to stay where we were in the mountains. And, um, but it wasn't that, like I said, but we were like part of the frozen chosen, just sitting there doing nothing for the Lord. And so that's when the Lord led me to this book. Let me read this little section to you. And bear with me. I was one of those kids in school that didn't like to read in front of people. <laughs> kind of still like that. <laughs> so this is uh, called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim, a pilgrim, that's us as Christians, right? This is not our country. This is not our world. We're just going through it to get to eternity. We're pilgrims. Pilgrims are supposed to progress, not degress, right? We're supposed to always be going forward. And we weren't. And so the Lord needed to show me that. And this book is an allegory. Um, let me see, where did I have that? Okay, sorry, I speeded up a little bit. It's an allegory which is like a parable, a short and simple story designed to communicate a spiritual truth or a religious principle or a moral lesson, a figure of speech in which truth is illustrated by a comparison or example drawn from everyday experiences. Now, Jesus was the master of teaching parables. And thank God for the Holy Spirit because they are there in the scriptures to put their, them there for our learning. And then there are also books that men have written. This one was written back in 1678. So it's come a long way through history, and it's still very viable for today. But the Holy Spirit has put in men's hearts how to study and teach us through their works. It's all moved by the Holy Spirit. So now with that, let me read this. Oh, and I just lost my place. Okay, here it is. So again, it's a parable. This man, John Bunyan, who is the writer, he was in prison when he wrote this. He was in prison for his faith and for refusing to stop witnessing in the streets of England. And that he wouldn't shut up like they want us to do. And he just kept going until finally they threw him in prison. And there while he was in prison, he had a dream. And later he wrote it out his dream. And here's one portion, just one little portion. Then I saw in my dream, this is John Bunyan, that the interpreter took Christian. Now the interpreter, I'm sorry, I should have told you that. We're going to the house of the interpreter. <laughs> sorry. We're going to the house of the interpreter. The house, as this is an allegory, represents the house of God. The interpreter represents the pastor, teacher, or the one who's expounding on the word of God to help you understand it. So, in my dream, I saw the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where a fire was burning next to a wall. 
Standing by the wall was an individual who was continually throwing water on the fire to put it out. Yet the fire just burned higher and hotter. Christian asked, that's us, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace working in the heart. He who throws water on it is to on it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But as you see, the fire is burning higher and hotter in spite of it. You'll be shown the reason for that. With that, he took Christian around to the other side of the wall. There he saw a man with a jar of oil in his hand, continually, secretly pouring oil over the fire. So you have the devil trying to douse the fire in our souls, and you have this person with the oil keeping it burning. Again, Christian asked, what does this mean? The interpreter explained, this is Christ who continually maintains the work already begun in the heart by applying the oil of his grace. Because of this, the souls of his people remain full of grace in spite of what the devil can do. In that, you saw the man standing behind the wall to keep the fire burning. That's meant to teach you that it is hard for those tempted. We are being tempted now in many ways to walk away from our Lord, to see how this work of grace is continued in the soul. So the Holy Spirit is continually trying to revive us, filling us with that oil, which is always representative of the Holy Spirit. Can you see how this persistent work of the Holy Spirit is keep, keeps trying to fill our souls with his presence? No matter what the devil throws at us, no matter what the world throws at us, he is always trying to keep us on fire for him. And also remember that whatever you're going through is all a part of God's perfect plan to give you a perfect faith. Because when we enter into heaven, there is not going to be any half-hearted Christians there. We're going to be fully in love with the Lord. Now, I'd also like to read another section of this book. And it's a much more serious section of this book. And uh, because we are living in very dangerous and serious times. And I have, um, I've been watching, I told you I'm a watcher, right? I watch people, I watch the news, I watch the times. I'm not one of those people that, you know, refuse to know what's going on. I want to know. Whenever they give me a prescription from some new, for some new medicine, a lot of times people don't want to know the possible side effects. I want to know. <laughs> because if I happen, I, oh, yep, it's the medicine, don't freak out. You know, it, it's part of the deal, I guess. But anyway, uh, I like to know things. And so I've been watching the news, and the statistics are that as much as 30% of our young people are no longer coming to Christ. They don't want nothing to do with the church or Christianity. Even if their parents are believers, and as much as 20% of whole families are walking away from the faith, and maybe even more. So here in this chapter, which is a very serious chapter, I want you to listen closely. Now, I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. So Christian smiled. This was after one of the rooms that I'm not going into, because he goes into these various rooms where um, the interpreter is explaining life to him in the walk with Christ. But he smiles and he says, I think I actually know the meaning of this. Then he said, now let me continue on my journey. No, said the interpreter. Stay a while and I want to show you a little more. And after that, you will go on your way. 
So he took him by the hand again and led him into a very dark room where a man was sitting in an iron cage. Now the man looked very sad, and he sat there with his eyes looking down to the ground and his hands folded together, and he sighed as if his heart would break. And Christian asked, what does this mean? At this, the interpreter, that's the teacher, invited him to walk with that, talk with that man. Then Christian asked the man, who are you? The man answered, I am who I once was not. Who were you once, inquired Christian. The man said, in my own eyes and in the eyes of others, I was once an honest and flourishing professor of faith. I considered myself once a good candidate for, for a home in the celestial city, speaking of heaven. And at that time, I even had joy in the thoughts of living there. Well, said Christian, who are you now? I am now a man of despair, answered the man. I am shut up in despair, just as I am in this iron cage. I can't go out. Oh, I cannot go out. But how did you come to be in this condition, asked Christian. Here it is. I stopped being alert and self-controlled, said the man. I let loose of the reins of my desires. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I've grieved the spirit, and he is gone. I've tempted the devil, and he has come to me. I've provoked God to anger, and he has let, left me. That speaks of Romans chapter 1. And I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then Christian said to the interpreter, But is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. You ask him. Then Christian asked, Is there any hope for being kept in this iron cage of despair. No, none at all, said the man. Why, asked Christian. I'm guilty of crucifying him again, answered the man. I've despised his position, I've hated his righteousness, and I've treated his blood as an unholy thing. I've insulted the spirit of grace. So I'm excluded myself. I've excluded myself from all of the promises, and now there remains for me nothing but threats, dreadful threats, fearful threats of certain judgment and raging fire, which will devour me as an enemy of God. Now, I know that was a lot of reading. I hope you got it. There was a time, and I'm not judging anyone, because trust me, I was that man. I walked away from the Lord, and I was in a bar, willfully walking away from God and my marriage, and I was in a bar trying to go back into the world. And the Holy Spirit, it was like he sh shined a light on things in this bar. That's what the Holy Spirit has been doing in my whole life, letting me see things and know things. And he said, as bold as I can tell you, I heard his voice, what are you doing here? I took you out of here. Why are you back? And I'm like, I don't know. And I was... It was a disco time. <laughs> my friend was, I was with my friend, she was disco dancing. And um, I was not good at that anymore because I, I came out of that. I, I was still doing, you know, <laughs> when I came to the Lord. So I just went, I said, you know, I'll wait for you outside and, you know, have fun. I'll, I'll wait for you in my car. I'm not feeling good. There's a lot of stuff that happened there, which I won't go into, but I went into my car and I just wept and cried to the Lord. And I, she didn't come out till three in the morning, so I took her home and I went home 
And I had already left my husband, and I was all alone. And I just flipped open the scripture to what he just said here. For I've crucified the Lord myself. I brought him an open shame. And um, I begged God, would you please give me another chance? I promise I will serve you the rest of my life. Here I am. (laughs) So I'm telling you all this because don't think for a minute that you will never walk away from the Lord, that it isn't possible. Look at David, King David, a man after God's own heart. You know, it could happen to the most faithful of Christians when the enemy, when you just start pulling back a little, pulling back a little more, a little more. And so I encourage you. Now, I'm going to introduce to you our guest speaker for tonight. His name is Adrian Rogers. You all know we're having a guest speaker tonight? (laughs) Kind of like a surprise guest speaker. Uh, I actually wasn't going to tell anybody. I was just going to surprise, but my husband thought that wasn't a good idea. (laughs) So I go, yeah, because that's kind of like a captive audience, right? So don't leave. Trust me, you will not regret it. But Adrian Rogers is a pastor who, a Bible teacher who is in the presence of God. He, um, I met him on TV back when I was going through a cancer treatments, and I was not able to go out because of my white blood counts. I could have gotten, if I got a cold, I could have died. And so I had to stay home. And I had church at 8 o'clock in the morning with this man, Adrian Rogers. And he's a powerful, dynamic teacher. And though he's in the presence of God, his messages are timeless because they are coming from the, the timeless word of God. And um, he could have taught this message yesterday. It, it's just so relevant. And so I hope that I, I kind of led you to where I want you to know that revival starts with us. It doesn't start with the world. You see, the world needs salvation. We need revival so that we could take the gospel to them. But if we are freaking out and worried about everything and not walking with the Lord and our numbers are diminishing, Who's going to take it to them? So I I hope and I pray that you will take this to heart because it is vital to your faith. It is vital to your walk. It is vital to the commission that we have had from our Lord Jesus to go out into all the world. And let me tell you, it says, Jesus tells the disciples, to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth, right? The way things are looking, it could be any day now. We don't know. But we continue on until the Lord says blows that trumpet right so with that will you please play the video and uh please listen closely it's it's an amazing study i want you to turn to chapter three this morning revelation chapter three and uh i want to address a problem today That is a great problem in today's church, and it may be in your life. It's what I call ho-hum Christianity, where we believe, but we yawn in the face of God. There's no fire, there's no zeal, there's no enthusiasm for the things of God. And the tragedy today is a half-hearted, dry-eyed church in a hell-bent world. God may be speaking to you through this message today. Now we're in the book of the Revelation and we're going to come to this second division. Division number one, things that you've seen. 
We've talked about that. It was the glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Division number two is the things which are, and that is the church age. And we're going to be speaking today about the messages in the book of the Revelation to seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now, these were seven literal churches, but we're going to see they're also symbolic churches and have a message for us today. At the close of the church age will be the rapture of the church. That may be today. Who knows when that's going to be? Now, I want you to notice the message to the last of these seven churches because we're not going to deal with all seven. We're going to deal with the last message, and then we're going to move on because time will prohibit us to spend much time in chapters 2 and 3 because your heart is hungry and needs to know the things that will be hereafter. But I want to address your attention this morning to Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold Tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh, Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne? And then it closes with this injunction. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the church. Now, again, I want to tell you there were seven churches in Asia Minor, what we would call today Turkey. They were seven literal churches. And our Lord gave a message to these seven churches, and our Lord is giving a message through that message to Bellevue Baptist Church and to you today. Now, these messages, these churches, speak to us prophetically. As we see these seven churches, it is a prophecy of the church age, beginning with Ephesus, a church whose love was waning and growing cold, on down to Laodicea, a church that was lukewarm. And so... These messages speak prophetically. If we want to see what the church age is going to be like, we look at the seven churches. But not only do they speak to us prophetically, they speak to us practically. I want to say that there is not a problem that this church or any church will ever face that is not addressed in those seven churches. They speak to us practically. But I want to say a third thing. They speak to us powerfully. Verse Chapter 3, verse 22 says, He that hath an ear to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, this is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit of God is asking you, are you listening? Boys and girls, don't pass notes. Mister, forget about that business deal. Lady, 
Put aside what you're going to have for lunch today and listen. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. God is going to hold you responsible today for what you hear. And God is going to hold you responsible today for what you would have heard had you listened. These words speak to us prophetically. They speak to us practically. They speak to us powerfully. And they speak to us personally. This is not just what God has said. It is what God is saying. It is not what God is saying in general. It is what God is saying to you. Now listen to verse 22. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. You say, well, this may be a message to Bellevue. No, friend, it is a message to you. The church is made up of individuals just like you. So would you open your ears, open your mind, open your heart to hear this message to these seven churches on how to keep your spiritual fire burning. Now, this is a great encouragement to me because as we see in chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is pictured standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. Now, those seven golden candlesticks, candelabra, as it were, lamps fed by oil are an illustration of the church, the light of the world. And Jesus is shown in the midst of those seven golden candlesticks. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us the same thing that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of them. Look to the person to your right and the person to your left. Jesus is closer to you than that individual. Jesus is here today. There was a rumor in a particular church that the President of the United States may visit that church. A lady who did not normally attend called the pastor hoping to get a seat. And she said, is it true that the president of the United States will be there this morning? He said, no, ma'am, that's a rumor. But the king of kings will be there, and that ought to be good enough for you. Amen. Jesus Christ is here. Say to your neighbor, he's here. Jesus is here. He is here today. He's in the midst of the church. Would we sing differently if Jesus in the flesh were sitting by us? Would we pay more attention if Jesus in the flesh were sitting by us? I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is in the midst of his church. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Whitmire has reminded us over and over again that it is our Lord who sings praises in the midst of his brothers and of his sisters. And so what an encouragement this is. Now, we have a message from him. Look, if you will, again in verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. Now, what does that mean? It means he's the factual Christ, the Amen. He doesn't just say Amen. He is the Amen. The word Amen means it is so. Let it be. This is a factual word from the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful and the true witness. Not only is he the factual one, he is the faithful one. Whatever he says, you can bank on it. He will not lie, and he will tell you exactly what you need to hear. The beginning of the creation of God, he is the forceful one. He is the one who made it all. He is the one who created everything. He is the sovereign Lord of this church, and he is in the midst of his brethren today, and he has a message for you today. And the Bible says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And I pray God that God will open your mind today and speak to you. Don't get the idea the message is for somebody else. Do you have ears today? 
He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the church. Now, there's several things I want to lay on your heart today about lukewarm Christianity. First of all, it's what I want to call the curse of lukewarm Christianity. The curse of lukewarm Christianity. Look in verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. For the word spew, I'm going to give you a word that may seem inelegant, but it'll be graphic. I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's the same word we get our English word emetic from. It's something that causes you to regurgitate. Uh, it's the Greek word there that means to vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. What God is saying is this. There is a sin that nauseates him. There is a sin that, uh, figuratively speaking, makes God feel ill. That makes him want to regurgitate. What is that sin that is so nauseous to God? It's the sin that is probably the most prevailing sin in the modern church today. It is the sin of lukewarmness. Now, what is lukewarmness? Lukewarmness is that state of being just a little too cold to be hot. And just a little too hot to be cold. Too cold to boil. Too hot to freeze. That which is nauseous, insipid. And, and to whom is our Lord speaking? Our Lord is speaking uh, not to the out-and-out sinner about lukewarmness. He's not talking about the atheist, the agnostic, the God-hater, those who hate Christ, the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel. These are cold. He's not speaking to them. There's a judgment coming for them one day, but that's not the one to whom he's speaking. Nor is he speaking for those who are hot, those who are on fire, those who are zealous, those whose hearts have a burning passion, uh, the going, glowing, growing Christian. He's not speaking to these people, those with holy fire and holy zeal, but he's speaking to those in between, not the out-and-out sinner, not the on-fire Christian, but that one who is lukewarm, the cold dishwater Christian, the lukewarm, good Lord, good devil, self-satisfied, half-hearted Christian. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I've been pastoring long enough to know that most of the people in this congregation fall in that category. That breaks my heart to say it. But I'm not here today to make you feel good. And when we finish with a message, I think you'll agree. As a matter of fact, I had to search my heart today before I could preach this message. And I had to do some repenting. How is lukewarmness manifested? Let's just see whether or not you're lukewarm. I want to mention six ways that you may find yourself to be lukewarm. Uh, some Christians, many of them, are lukewarm about their sanctification. What I mean by that is this. They are indifferent about personal holiness. Holiness is an old-fashioned word, isn't it? How many of you in this place today say, Pastor, I long to be holy. The passion of my heart is to be holy. Mark chapter 7 and verse 6, speaking, Jesus is speaking. He answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is your heart far from God today? You sing these glorious songs, but is there a burning passion in your heart for holiness? 
You say, well, Pastor Rogers, we Baptists don't believe in sinless perfection. I wish Baptists were as much afraid of sin as they are sinless perfection. We ought to be as holy as we can be. Oh, we have people today, you won't tell an out-and-out lie. You won't tell black lies, but you tell those little lies. You see somebody you don't like and say, well, it's good to see you. You say to a friend, I'll be praying for you. And you never pray for them. You may not steal, but do you pay your debts? You don't commit adultery, but do you laugh at filthy jokes and entertain yourselves with lasciviousness on television? You don't curse, but do you use secondhand cursing? Golly, gosh darn. These are just euphemisms. Heck is a euphemism for hell. Are you cold about holiness, about purity? Oh, you say, I don't commit adultery. But do you entertain yourself on television with those who do? A little girl prayed, Lord, make me good. Not too good, just good enough not to get a spanking. Lukewarm about sanctification. What about service? Many people are lukewarm about service. How many Sunday school teachers who are teachers in this church, Bible fellowship teachers, are burdened for their class, that weep over their class, that pray over their class, that witness how many of you are concerned about the unsaved that are members on your role? And how many of you are trying to enroll more unsaved that they might come to the Lord Jesus Christ? How many preachers in today's world preach with urgency and fire and tears and conviction? When I was in seminary, we were talking about preaching. And our preaching professor said that preaching is very much like making any other kind of a speech. You don't need to have a preacher tone. You don't need to have preacher mannerisms. It's just like making any other kind of a, of a speech. That's what he was trying to teach. There was a man, an elderly black man in our class. He'd been pastoring for a long time. His name, Famous McElhaney. I'll never forget the name. Famous McElhaney. Famous McElhaney lifted his hand and he said, Professor, I hear what you're saying. But he said, when I get up to preach, something gets a hold of me. Would to God, would to God that there are more preachers who would not just preach with exactitude and eloquence and, and uh, pronounce every word correctly, but would have a burning fire in their heart as they serve the Lord. Somebody described the average preacher as a mild-mannered man standing in front of mild-mannered people, exhorting everybody to be more mild-mannered. We look warm about our service to the Lord. What about singing? The most important thing about a song is not that it's always in perfect pitch, that every word is memorized. The most important thing about a song is that we sing in the Spirit. Nobody ought to be in our choir this morning who's not Spirit-filled. Nobody ought to ever lead music who's not Spirit-filled. The, the requirement for singing is this in Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19. And be not drunk with wine, we're in success, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's what we ought to do. We ought to sing with gladness. We ought to sing with urgency. We ought to sing with feeling. We ought to sing with tears. Our singing ought to bless people and warm people. I was so blessed, Brother Whitmire, by the song service this morning. Thank God for it. That's the way we need to sing always. How many are lukewarm about the scriptures? How many of you really love the Word of God? 
How many of you really hunger for the Word of God? We believe the Bible in general, but we don't believe it with specificity. The average Christian, the average Christian has never read the Bible through. The average Christian could not name the books of the Bible. I would not embarrass you this morning by asking you to turn to the book of Hezekiah. Some would be looking for Philip 66. You don't even know what are the books of the Bible. You have never read the Bible through. The entire Bible can be read through in 10 months with only four chapters a day. How many of you believe everything you read in the newspaper? Let me see your hand. Not one hand went up, and I'm glad. How many of you believe everything in the Bible? Let me see your hand. Now, I'm not going to ask the third question. How many of you spend more time with the newspaper than you do with the Bible? How many of you spend more time with something you don't believe than something you say that you do believe? We are lukewarm about the Scriptures. We do not love the Word of God. Lukewarm about our prayer life, about supplication. The average Christian doesn't spend 10 minutes a day in intercession. When's the last time you ever missed a meal to pray? When's the last time you ever missed a night's sleep to pray? When's the last time you have fasted and prayed for a day? I'll tell you what the devil does. The devil looks at the modern church today, the Laodicean church, and he stands off and he laughs. And he says, you can have your buildings, you can have your sound system, you can have your Bible classes, you can have your organization, you can have your staff, you can have your supper room, you can have it all. As long as you leave out the power of Almighty God that comes through earnest, persistent prayer that will not take no for an answer. And the good many times becomes the substitute for the best. We need to learn how to pray. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We're lukewarm about our sacrifice. How many sacrificing Christians do you know? You don't have to go to some foreign land to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to die to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Some would not miss, some would not allow themselves to be embarrassed on the job by bringing a Bible and simply putting a Bible on the desk. Some are ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ and will not even bow their head and give thanks in a public place for their meal. What about your sacrifice? We give little, but not too much. Most of our giving has never changed our lifestyle. We sing, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. We hold it with all our might. We pray without fasting. We give without sacrifice. We witness without tears. Is it any wonder that we sow without reaping? We are, we are lukewarm about soul winning. Do you have a passion for the lost? Do you believe that your next door neighbor without Jesus is doomed to hell? Do you really believe that? Maybe you don't believe in hell. Maybe you don't believe the Great Commission. Maybe you don't believe that it's your solemn responsibility and glorious privilege to share the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How challenged I was as I prepared this message. I wondered, Adrian, have you grown lukewarm, grown cold? I can remember times in my young Christian life when I would get on my knees and tell the Lord, I'm going out of this house, out of this place. I will not let sleep come to my eyes until I win a soul to Jesus Christ going from place to place, walking up and down the streets, looking for some blessed soul that I could share the Lord Jesus Christ with. Uh, lukewarmness is a terrible, horrible sin. Let me tell you the harm of lukewarmness. You see, why, had our Lord, why does our Lord say, I'd rather have you cold than lukewarm? Think about it. 
I would that you were either hot or cold or hot. Now listen, he had rather have you cold, out and out against him, hating him, than pretending to love him and being lukewarm. The lukewarm Christian has done more to harm the cause of Jesus Christ than all the prostitutes, bartenders, and drug pushers put together. You may not believe that. Friend, listen. Lukewarm Christians are the alibi of sinners. They double-cross Christ. Jesus had rather have you on the wrong side of the fence than sitting on the fence. That's what he says. I would that you were hot or cold or hot. So then, because you're neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I'm convinced if we had as many, uh, only one-tenth of those who name the name of Christ, who call themselves Christians, only one-tenth of those, but they were all on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd see a mighty, a mighty revival. You see, we can't even reach the goal for stumbling over our own players. I'm telling you that lukewarm Christians are the alibi of sinners. One time in another presidential election, I was with a group. We were interviewing some men who are candidates for the president of the United States. And I won't name the name of this particular individual, but he's well known, held a big government job, former governor of the state. We were at his ranch. Somebody asked this man about his relationship to Christ. And he said, well, let me tell you about that. He said, I used to go to church. And he named the denomination. I'm not going to embarrass people by calling that denomination, but a mainline denomination. And he said, the pastor of that church came in there. I watched him. Now, this is a man, a very important man. And a very wealthy man. He said, but I watched that man. He said, I watched him for a while and I decided that he didn't believe what he was preaching. So why should I? I thought, what a tragedy. There's a lukewarm preacher who was the alibi for a man who thought that he was worthy to be the president of the United States of America. G. Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible expositors that ever lived, said this, that lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Now, friend, that's a mouthful. Lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. What is lukewarmness? Lukewarmness says... Jesus, I believe in you, but you just don't excite me. I believe in you, but I don't intend to serve you with fire and fervor. What an insult to Almighty God to yawn in the face of God. Why is lukewarmness so bad? I'll tell you why it's so bad. Because lukewarmness sets us up for other sins. The lukewarm Christian is a sitting duck for the devil. How do you remain faithful to your wife and not run off with some other woman? Stay in love with your own wife. A person who is deeply in love with his own wife is not going to go off with someone else's wife. Now, I've talked to you about the curse of lukewarmness. Let me talk to you about the cause of it. The cause of lukewarm Christianity. Look in verses 17 and 18. Because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. It must have been some kind of a church. Rich, increased with goods. We don't have anything. We don't need anything. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now there is the cause. It's summed up in two phrases. 
Thou sayest and knowest not. Thou sayest and knowest not. Their indifference was caused by their ignorance. They didn't even know what their need was. Their greatest need was to see their need. The lukewarm Christian is generally the last one to know that he is a lukewarm Christian. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, I wonder to whom he's speaking. And God may be speaking to you and you may be on this platform. It may be the pastor that God is speaking to today. There are none so blind as those who refuse to see. They're none so deaf as those who have ears but will not hear. That's the reason he says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the church. A pastor had one particular man in mind every time he preached. That man needed the message, but the man seemed never to hear. He'd always meet the pastor at the back door and say, Pastor, you really told him today. You really told him today. You, one day the pastor got the idea that I, I, I'll let him have it today because the man was the only man present. So he said, he can't say that today. And he preached the message that was on his heart. Went to the back door to shake hands. And the man said, Pastor, if they had been here, you would have told them today. <laughs> the lukewarm Christian. So many times he does not even know that he is lukewarm. Now notice what he says in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Laodicea was famous for three things. For its famous wool, for its wealth in gold, and for it, it was a medical center where they treated blindness. And so uh, God the Holy Spirit is making a play here on words. And he, and he says, uh, uh, in spite of your wool and your wealth, and your medicine. You need a holy fire. I wonder if these were people who bought into the health and wealth gospel that's preached on television today by the happy boys. I have need of nothing. And know it's not that thou art miserable, wretched. Now, think of it. Think of it. Here they were, sitting there so self-satisfied. Thou sayest, and knowest not. Now, how does this lukewarmness begin? How does this self-satisfaction, this complacency begin? What is the cause? How did they get to this state? Well, people cool down by degrees. Now, over here, we have seven churches. Ephesus was the first. Laodicea, the last. In all kinds of conditions in between those seven churches. Now, our Lord begins in chapter 2 speaking to the church at Ephesus. And our Lord says some marvelous things to the church at Ephesus. It speaks about their program. It speaks about their power. It speaks about all of their purity and all of these things. And as you read it, you say, my, what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful church was Ephesus. And yet he says one thing to the church at Ephesus in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Listen to it. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and I know that thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast, and hast patience for my name's sake, uh, hast labored, and hast not fainted. Sounds like a glorious church. But there is a nevertheless in verse 4. Listen to it. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. 
Now, it's not that they didn't love the Lord anymore. They just lost, left their first love. What is first love? Do you remember when you first got married? Do you remember your honeymoon? That's first love. Somebody said the honeymoon is that period of time between I do and you'd better. The honeymoon ought never to end. If you don't love your wife more today than you did when you married her, you love her less. Love is not a static thing. Uh, how sad it is when people leave their first love. First love is enthusiastic. First love is reckless. First love doesn't count the cost. First love says, I love you with all of my heart, all of my soul. Those of you who are married, you need to keep the honey in the honeymoon. Joyce and I were at breakfast. She looked away and I took some honey and put it on my lips. Gave her a big kiss. She liked it. I thought, that's a pretty good idea. We were at another meal, so I got some hot sauce and put that on my lips. That didn't go over so good. I thought, well, hot lips, that ought to be as good as honey lips. But you got to keep the honey in the honeymoon. You've got to keep that love hot and glowing and growing. Here's what our Lord says to this church. I have somewhat against thee. Nevertheless, you've left your first love. Question, was there ever a time when you loved Jesus Christ more than you do right now? If so, to that degree, you're backslidden. And you're beginning to cool down, and before long, you will assume room temperature. And when you do, you'll look around and you'll say, Well, I must not be so bad, I'm like everybody else. Somebody has well said that in the average church is so lukewarm that you have to backslide to be in fellowship. If you really get on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, people are going to think that you're odd. Now, I'm, I, how, do you, how do you become lukewarm? You just assume that you're all right, but you're cooling down by degrees. Now, what is finally, what is the cure for lukewarm Christianity? Look again in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. They needed the gold of God's glory, gold that had been through the fire. Are you rich today? Add up everything that you have that money can't buy and death cannot take away. You'll know how rich you are. They needed the gold of God's glory. They needed the garments of God's righteousness. Buy of me a white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. The shame of your nakedness. You see, they thought they were clothed. They decked themselves up and came to the worship service. They look so fine. God says, you're sitting there naked. Can you imagine yourself this morning sitting in church naked? Use a little imagination. You're naked this morning sitting there. But you think you're clothed. You remember Hans Christian Anderson's story of the king's, the emperor's clothes? There were some cheats, some conniving men who pretended to be tailors. And they said to the king, look. We have woven a beautiful garment. It is magnificent. It is for you, O king. Of course, there was nothing there. It was just, it was 
nothing, but they said it was clothes that anybody with intelligence could see. And the king bought into it, took off all his clothes and put on nothing. Walked up and down the streets showing everybody his magnificent clothes. And everybody was ashamed to say the king has no clothes because only the ignorant could not see these wonderful clothes. So no one would admit that the king didn't have any clothes on. And the king walking around absolutely naked. Till a little boy one day had the audacity, audacity to say, look at the king. He is altogether as naked as the day he was born. You can't help but think of that story as you read this. Buy of me white raiment that you may be clothed. The white raiment speaks of righteousness. And I salve, anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. They said that they saw. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. Would you pray, O oh God, not only give me ears this morning to hear, but give me eyes to see. Is God speaking to me not today? Now, God sums it all up in verse 19. Look at it. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Lukewarmness is a horrible, listen, a horrible, a hateful, a heinous sin. The greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart. And I'm going to tell you that the greatest sin is not to love God with all of your heart. If the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, the greatest sin is not to do it. Can you say amen to that? That's the greatest sin. Now ask yourself this morning, do I love the Lord my God with all of my heart? If not, am I willing to repent? Because I'm going to tell you something else. If you don't, he's going to rebuke and chasten you. You can't just waltz on to heaven in a lukewarm condition without God meeting you to chasten you. That's his word. Repent. What do I do with my lukewarmness? I call it a sin. It is not weakness. It is wickedness. It is not small sin. It is great sin. It makes God nauseous. It makes God nauseous. And our Lord says that's going to be the condition of the average church in the last days. And I believe we're living in the last days. Then he says a word to the unsaved. With this, I'm finished. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Now he's speaking to those who are in the church, but they're not even saved. He said, listen to me. I'm knocking at your heart's door. What a loving Lord he is. How much he loves you. Even if you're lukewarm, as many as I love, I rebuke and chase him. And if you're lost, he wants to save you. And he sent me here to tell you that he's knocking at your heart's door. And he's not going to break it down. He's not going to force the lock. It's not enough for you to whisper a prayer through the keyhole. It's not enough for you to shove an offering under the door. Would you open the door today and let Jesus in? You say, Pastor, I really want to do that. I really do. I want to be saved. That's a wonderful. Could I help you to do it?
could I lead you in a prayer? And in this prayer, you could receive Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads in prayer? And those of you who are saved and know that you know the Lord Jesus, would you begin to pray for others who may not know him? And friend, if you're hungry to know him, would you pray this prayer? Oh God, I'm a sinner and I'm lost. Thank you for shedding your blood on the cross to pay for my sin. You told me if I would trust you, that you would save me. And I do trust you. I open the door of my heart. Come into my life now. Come in, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin. Save me, Jesus. Lord, I pray that many today will pray that prayer in your holy name. Amen. Would you take God's... Can you see why I wanted you to hear him? <laughs> it's powerful. And to continue his thought, for those that... I mean, first of all, um, revival starts with us, as I was saying. The world needs salvation. And for anyone who may have watched this presentation from Adrian Rogers, and you are wanting to accept the Lord as your Savior, today is the day to do that. The Word of God tells us today is a day of salvation. Don't put it off any longer. Because there is no movement in this world that can save you. There is no president, new or old, that can save you. There is no amount of money that you can gain and have in your account that can save you. No parent, no policeman, no preacher that can save you. There isn't another Savior coming. He's come, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is calling out to you, come to me, and you'll be saved. And so I want to pray a prayer once again. If there's anyone out there that would want to pray this prayer, just pray it along with me. Father, we bow before you. I bow before you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I confess that I know I am a sinner. My life proves it. I've heard now that you are the one that can save me and deliver me from this sin. So I accept salvation in you. I believe in you, though I don't know much about you. I want to know more. So please, Jesus, save me, because I know I need saving in Jesus' name. It's that simple. That's all you have to do is confess that he is Lord and accept him. So with that, I hope and pray that when we go out, and this is now the close of the season on learning about who the Holy Spirit is and how he works in our life, that you will continue to grow. And that you will commit your life, whatever is left of it, to him. Because we don't know if we have tomorrow, right? We hear all these things. We don't know if we have tomorrow. So give back to him all that he's given to you. And I'm excited about our, our new season of Bible study that we will start in September. Just looking at the clock, making sure I'm not going too much longer. And um, we're going to go back into our homes we're calling it Welcome Home. 
and we're going to go behind our closed doors, kind of continuing this work of what God wants to do in us. But what's happening in your homes? We're seeing what's happening in the houses and the homes of America, and it's very troubling. And so I really believe that as Christians, we need to get our house in order. And there are various ways that we're going to learn how to do that. Beginning with, first of all, of course, this is a women's ministry. I'm going to answer the question on our very first study, what is a woman? <laughs> wow. Never would have thought in a million years that that would have been a, a question that people refuse to answer. Well, we're going to answer it according to the word of God and then go on from there and learn what God's word has to say. After all, he is our creator, right? So if uh, thank you, ladies, for the beautiful worship. And we'll go out singing and praising the Lord and just celebrating all that we've learned. And, and now that we can go out and, and put it in our lives and in the lives of others. Okay? God bless you all. We love you.